Hi everyone, welcome back. This is Synth Gonzalez and I have Josie with me. Hi! This is a great episode today. We are so excited for you all to listen. We have our dear guest, Craig Johnson, who recently directed Women in Jeopardy here. In this episode, we discuss the Women in Jeopardy creative process with Craig, his first ever production, which may be a surprise to you, his moment of inspiration that has guided his career, and we also do a little quiz with Craig to see if his talking matches his walking. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Commonweal Theater Podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we are so excited to record this episode today because we have a very special guest with us, Craig Johnson, who recently (laughs) directed Women in Jeopardy. Hello, Craig. Hi. It's great to be here with you, and it's great to be back in Lanesboro. It's so exciting to record with you because we originally didn't have it scheduled, but when you emailed us, we were like, yes, please, (laughs) that would be amazing. So we're so glad that you you reached out. Thank you. That's a very gracious way of uh, acknowledging that (laughs) invited myself on your podcast. (laughs) Well, otherwise, you know, I mean, we didn't know you were coming into town, and so this is just a great opportunity. And I was really aware that since we're doing the brush up this afternoon and Mm -hmm. reopening Women in Jeopardy, for its last six, seven weeks, that it would be great to uh, promote that a little bit, too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So to start us off, we have a little fun quiz for you. Yes, because you said said in your email that you teach theater history. I do. Oh, dear. (laughs) I'm a theater history person, too. Mm -hmm. It, like, itches my brain. So we we have a little quiz. I love it. Before we get started, though, I'm curious, where have you taught and how long? Um, I've taught at the University of St. Catherine in Mm St. Paul, so I've done a couple uh, classes there. That's when I did a little bit more theater history, and most recently I've been teaching directing at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Amazing. That's awesome. So we'll put you to the test. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. Some of these questions might be more difficult. They might not, but we'll just have fun and see. Okay. See what happens. So. What were the names of the two actors, one American and one English, who incited a riot? Oh, it was in the mid-19th century in New York City, and they were both performing Hamlet, is that right? No, Macbeth. Macbeth, Macbeth, sorry for saying that. (laughs) There we go. Um, MacReady Mm -hmm. was one, and Forrest? Yes! Correct! (laughs) Ding, ding, ding! ding. (laughs) Wow, that that was a deep dive. (laughs) Okay, what types of scripts did Commedia dell'arte use? A, full five-act script. B, they only used general guidelines. And C, none, they made it up completely as they went. I think B. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. That's correct. (laughs) All right, what is an execlaima? If you need more context, I can give you more. Yeah, I think I do. Okay. I don't know that term. It was a certain set piece that was used in ancient theater. Oh, is it uh, one of the special effects that were used in uh, classical Greek theater? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe if I saw the word, I would. Uh, it, it might ring a bell. But no, tell me. 
It was a wagon that they used to bring people on with after offstage violence. Great. See, I knew what it was, but I didn't know there was a word for it. So when Josie showed me that question, I was like, interesting. Okay, <laughs> next question. Yeah. What is the theater movement that emerged between World War One and World War Two that was based on the presentational of the irrational and attacked traditional values? I, I think I would say theater of the absurd. Is that what you're looking for? Or Dada? Or? Yes. Okay, Dada. Dada. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But both of those, the description. Yeah. Right. Right. Great. Pretty similar. Um, what type of theater is Hashigakari used, which was a bridge that connects the dressing room to the stage? Uh, that would be traditional Japanese theater. I think mm -hmm. it would be no, or mm -hmm. it, and it, possibly a variation may have been used in Kabuki too. Correct. <laughs> ding, ding. Okay. <laughs> Who is a Roman playwright that was also a philosopher? Would it be Plautus, are you thinking, or Terence? I, that's Seneca. what I thought, yes. Seneca? That was yeah. the answer that we had, but okay. I was thinking Plautus too. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, those are the three I know, mm -hmm. so <laughs> we've gone through those. Yeah. But it would be, Seneca does make sense, yeah, mm -hmm. because he wrote... I think they were called closet tragedies that were mm. possibly meant to be mm -hmm. read rather than performed. Yes, yes. <laughs> or certainly that's all we do with them now. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. and then our last question mm -hmm. is, what does Leerstück mean? It's, it's a, a German word. Correct. Learning piece? Correct. Uh-huh. I'm... Is it a Brechtian term? You are okay. so right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's it. There's Yay. something about hearing foreign words and mm -hmm. not word that you usually have read in a oh, textbook. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to visualize that. Right. Yeah, great. But you lived yeah. in Germany for a while, right? I, I lived in Belgium. Okay. Uh, yeah, mm. when I was growing up too, mm -hmm. and in Japan. So the Japanese theater one was just like yes. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, that was fun. That that's was great. Yeah. That was really fun. <laughs> okay, so we've talked a little bit mm -hmm. about Women in Jeopardy, but that is the show that you're involved in this year. You're directing. Mm -hmm. What was kind of like the process like of first getting the script and how you wanted to approach it when you were directing? Well, usually, you know, if I get, if I'm lucky enough to get an offer to direct a script, I mean, the first thing you want to do is just read it. Just give it a, a good, solid, but quick read because you usually have to say yes or no. Do you want to do that? Um, and with this one, I, I read it and I thought, yes, I do want to do that. There were a few a few reservations because it seemed a little lightweight, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and there were some plot points that I thought like, well, really, this, but it it really fulfilled exactly what uh, what it needed to do within the season. It needed to be a fun comedy, and when I read it, overwhelmingly, I just thought, yes. There are funny jokes in here. There are wacky characters. There are great situations. Mm -hmm. It totally works just as that. And then I thought, like, okay, is there anything underneath in this script that I, that I could really hook into? And for me, it was the fact that it was three middle-aged women who were very good friends. We don't see that a lot on stage. There, We have a number of good plays, really good plays, that are about, like, uh, sometimes younger women or sisters, you know, I'm mm -hmm. thinking Three Sisters Dancing at Lunas right. or Crimes of the Heart, you know, and, and a lot of really great shows that way. But a lot of times when you look at a play, there's there might be one older woman. 
but you never see her in relationship to other older women or the issues that surround them. And with this play, it was not only their friendship and how their friendship gets tested, but it explores their relationship uh, with each other and their romantic and erotic mm -hmm. uh, relationships. And that really doesn't happen, too. So I love the funniness of it, and I loved uh, having that underneath, and especially with three women uh, who are playing those characters in this show, who I have known for about 20 years. You know, so I know them really well, and I know that right. they would come in with that kind of relationship just as actors right there, and that we could talk, we could move quickly, and we could move really freely into talking about, okay, what are their relationships like? And we, and it just makes the process go so much faster, deeper, further, and it just makes it more fun. Yeah, what really intrigues me about Women in Jeopardy, I always almost say which because of the abbreviation, but Women in Jeopardy <laughs> is that... Like so many of the times where we mm -hmm. see stories about older women, it's also like the sense of like running out of time to mm -hmm. find love. But like they're all past that. Like they're all divorced and Liz is the one who is maybe picking up the speed again. But right. it's really nice to see like that, you know, like the afterthought, like the love is not there. It's about the friendship. Mm -hmm. that's, right. my, that's my favorite part. Yeah. yeah which is also about love, but it's a different kind of love. Mm -hmm. And so we can explore that and see that represented on stage. And we can all hear that and watch that. And of course, in our audience, we have a lot of women who fall into that demographic. So let's tell their story. Right, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. that the older feminine relationships that are shown in the play seem to be such strong relationships. Like when there's an argument between Liz and Mary and Joe, it's never, it, I mean, like, I'm thinking of this scene in Act 2 where Liz comes in and she's like, oh, you guys aren't mad at me about that, right? Like, it's fine, you know? <laughs> and I think that just makes me think of how younger people who have relationships, who have friendships, it seems to be driven by a sense of, if you're upset, like, it's dramatic. It's mm -hmm. this huge moment or whatever. And it's a break with the relationship. Right, right, right. And, it, and these women show us that it doesn't need to be. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that it can happen, and then they can move on from that, or they can all learn from that, and they can accommodate that right. difference. Mm -hmm. And also having, like, the same expectation mm -hmm. that one would have in a romantic relationship in a friendship, mm -hmm. where it's like it's putting it on the same level and being like, if you would put this amount of effort into a romantic relationship, that is what I expect in a friendship. And like, when you have arguments, you work through it. It's not this like big dramatic thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your history with the Commonweal. Well, with the Commonweal, is, it really is one of the, my favorite places to come and, and direct as a freelance artist since I'm based in Minneapolis. I love coming down here for all the reasons that everyone likes coming down here because it's a beautiful picturesque location. Mm -hmm. It's a place where you can get out and do things. There are wonderful sort of shops and restaurants and stuff like that. So, you know, you can <laughs> see like what's happening yeah. in town. So it's a town where there's an energy and an excitement and there's an interest in, in the community, in 
the cultural expression that they have here. And, and Commonweal is kind of like at the center of it. So I love coming here. It's exactly the size of theater that I really like. Isn't, and isn't it wonderful that that's really the size theater that asks me to do <laughs> So I love saying like, oh, I don't like working at, you know, big, huge theaters with all of that machinery and, and institutional stuff. It's just like, well, Craig, they never ask you. <laughs> Rarely. Um, anyway, I do like the size of that. I feel like I can get my arms around the show mm -hmm. and I can get to know all of the people involved and we can work on something together and present it together. So all of that I really like. Commonweal also has just such a focus on what I think is the, the essential elements of theater, the actor, author, audience, uh, so that what you're really presenting is what I think theater is, which is embodied storytelling. So it's just like a performer is using their heart and mind and their face and their voice and their entire body to tell a story to an audience. So it, 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 it really comes back to those extreme basics. And I find that when I work on something um, and if I encounter problems or things like that, then I can um, just refocus or recalibrate myself on the essentials of theater. It's like, how can I help the actors remove as many obstacles mm. so that this show can come to the audience and present it as vibrantly and as fully and as imaginatively as we possibly can. But now you were asking me, what is my relationship with the Commonweal? So my relationship <laughs> is, uh, for over 20 years, I've been able to come down here if not every season, every other season, or every few seasons, and, and direct a show. So um, I think I've done like about 12 shows in just over 20 wow. years. Uh, the first one was in 2002, I think it was, where I, I, I actually wrote an adaptation of A Doll's House, the Ibsen oh, play, no and presented way. that here. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, which is really fun. I mean, as a director, I really like when I can have some kind of creative input mm -hmm. on yeah. the show itself. So mm -hmm. something like that would be, okay, you know, you look at many different translations or adaptations, you think, well, I kind of like this part here, and I like this little bit from over here, but like what I, what I think we need to say right now is this. Mm -hmm. And so being able to practice that and having a theater that will trust me to do that, like I did with that, and like I did just a couple of years ago with um, Christmas Carol, which mm -hmm. started off as a... Um, the, the sort of framework, of course, you have the Dickens story, and then the actors were cast, so we had the actor tracks, and we had some of the, uh, you know, the uh, Dickens original was just kind of uh, already sort of parsed out to people, but we needed, in order to tell that story of A Christmas Carol from uh, a woman's point of view, as if there were a, fe a female Scrooge, to imagine that, that was real, required just like a lot of, not a lot, but a certain amount of original writing and mm -hmm. sort of translation and adaptation and thinking through that, which was really fun to do because it happened fairly quickly. And it was really, uh, Adrian Sweeney was playing Ebenezer Scrooge. So uh, when I got the gig and I realized, okay, we have to really work on this, I would like send her one section of the script and said, does that make sense? And she would be like, yes, have you thought about this? And it's just like, great, I'll add that in and I'll move on. And so we kept going back and forth mm -hmm. and we were in dialogue on that. Like, what would it be like if there were was a woman who was Scrooge? You know, how would that mm -hmm. be different than Ebenezer Scrooge mm -hmm. in the standard story? Mm -hmm. What? How does it need to change? And so being able to have a theater company that will trust me to do that kind of creative work is, is really exciting. Now, for something like Women in Jeopardy, it was, it came... To the point of 
trying to solve the problems of the play. And I don't mean that, that there are problems in the play, but just producing it here. Right. As you well know, there are no backstage crew. Mm -hmm. How do we change the set that many times? It needs to go to so many different locations, mm -hmm. and it needs to happen quickly because it's a light comedy. And so you don't want to lose energy. You want to gain right. energy in your scene transition. So that that's when me, as a director, is looking at a script and thinking like, everything is going to be on wheels. So everything will roll and tilt and spin and you know and do all of those things that have comedy value, and we can move and the actors can move them quickly, and we can create some kind of context with sound, with music and things like that that will kick each one of those transitions up to make it almost seem like you're in a musical for a mm -hmm. moment, mm -hmm. like there's a spectacle moment that happens, and then when that happens. The audience can just enjoy that, and then we can settle down to another two-person scene, a funny scene, a good scene, mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but they're ready to hear more dialogue yeah. once again. Particularly, listen to me, I'm just going on and on here. Um, <laughs> no, but it's great. I'm like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> particularly if you have a show where like the character of Mary, again, played by Adrian Sweeney, who is on stage so much, you want to give that, you need to give that actor time to go off stage to get a drink of water and because the next scene she might end one scene and start the next one right. but it's a day later so there has to be some mm -hmm. kind of costume change so you have to build time for that to happen um, and get her back out on stage and it, not anything against Adrian at all but just give the audience a break from that character talking about stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And so you can have, as we do <laughs> in Women in Jeopardy, <laughs> have seen transitions that are quite wacky and quite creative. Mm -hmm. And so coming up with them and working with the company is really, really fun. That sounds so rewarding. And I remember mm -hmm. when we, I first watched the transitions after you had blocked them and mm -hmm. gone over them, I was just like, wow, this seems so incredibly built into the world of the play. Like it capitalizes on what is already there in such a great way. It raises the energy, the audience. It seems like the audience is looking forward to those transitions because right. they are so fun. And I just, I love them. I think they were amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's just such great joy to do that kind of creative work with people and say like, guess what? It's going to be kind of like a Chippendales you know, strip <laughs> yeah. club, which maybe these women in their, you know, in their most excitable moments right. might have gone to at some point, you know. <laughs> so there's something like that. Um, and with this, this show, just like another um, smaller um, choice that I made as a director was looking at that and saying, okay, Wendy McLeod wrote this in 2015. It's a present day script, but feeling like, you know, it doesn't feel like a script that where there has been a Me Too movement, there has been mm -hmm. George Floyd, mm -hmm. there has been a Trump presidency, and there has been a COVID pandemic worldwide. Mm -hmm. Okay, it needs to be someplace a little bit earlier. If I could have, I would have put it all the way back in the 1980s, just because I think mm -hmm. that would have had retro fun, mm -hmm. you know, and big shoulder pads and, you know, mm -hmm. moose and big hair <laughs> and, you know, and stuff like that. But there are things in the script, particularly because they keep talking about their use of cell phones. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, okay, cell phones are kind of important to them. When would those be new and fun? So we thought right. like that 2008, 2009 or something, so they could have flip phones and stuff like that. Yeah. And you could hear that little Ugh. snap and just the snap of a phone going just has a, a nostalgic kind of feel mm -hmm. for that phone. And it has just like that little rhythm 
to it, right. oh, which yeah, gives right. it that snap. comic snap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also seeing like Hannah in all of her outfits as Amanda gives me like such nostalgia. Like I remember looking at those teenagers being like, I want to be you so bad. <laughs> right, to give that sort of Paris Hilton, Britney Spears right. kind of, yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of vibe, yeah. And it's funny too how when we incorporated the flip phone yeah. in rehearsals, uh, Stella, who plays Liz, she would have these moments where we have to remind ourselves of how to use a flip phone because we just don't use them anymore. <laughs> right, right. And they were just so much clunkier and slower and how you had to text and, mm-hmm. you know, oh. <laughs> right, yeah. I want to talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about your adaptation work. Yeah. Um, and because we talked a little bit about Christmas Carol in our first podcast, mm-hmm. um, what did you, what did you and Adrian feel like in the original script that you needed to tweak to fit um, Scrooge to be a female presenting character? Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that in Dickens' original, this is just like a terrible thing to say because it's a classic work of great literature, but I felt we didn't know enough like why Scrooge mm-hmm. is the way he mm-hmm. is. You know, there's a little stuff, there's stuff with Belle in his past, and there's stuff when he was growing up and, um, you know, his relationship with Mm -hmm. his family, but it wasn't enough to sort of drive, you know, a daily sort of like convicted personality traits and behavioral activity. So I thought like, okay, for a woman of that period, um, in conversation with Adrian, I said like, it cannot be that kind of like, you know, Scrooge is always like sort of greasy and sort of just like mm-hmm. unkempt mm-hmm. and sort of just like, you know, the, the sort of miserliness comes out that way. But I thought like, no, a woman of that period would have to be absolutely correct. They would have to be better yeah. than everyone else. Mm-hmm. So she would have to dress perfectly. You know, she couldn't make a mistake. She was not allowed to make a mistake. Otherwise, since she, as such a slender minority within that community of a right. business, successful business community, and there were women who fulfilled that role in, in Victorian England, uh, you couldn't mess up at all. For me, that reminds me of the kind of pressure that the Obamas had to go through, mm. you know, where mm-hmm. they felt that, uh, you know, as the first black president and first family, they could not make any mistakes. And so like when Barack Obama wore a tan suit, I don't know if you remember that, but there was just like one time where instead of just like, a, you know, the standard deep blue suit, he wore a tan suit for some mm-hmm. summer, co- and it was just like a big deal, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just like, because that's all they could find on him, right. you know? Yeah. That was his biggest mistake, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> you know, so there was that. And to look at it on, a, on another side, if you, if you uh, happen to remember to Trump's inauguration, Melania Trump, and Melania, of course, we know, did not want to be first lady. She did not want to have part of it. What she wore was, I thought, a stunningly beautiful coat that just fitted her all the way up to the neck, came capped down here. She had long gloves on, Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of sky blue. And to me, when I looked at it, it looked like this is a person that's saying like, 
you, there's no way you can get inside me. You mm. cannot know me. I will not allow myself to mm. be known. I will not, even, my flesh will not even touch my husband's hands today. And it will look like I am fading into the blue sky because wow. I don't want to be there. And so those are some of the things that we thought of for a female Scrooge, that it would just be high neck, tight, collared. It would have an almost uniform military kind of look right there. And we work to make sure that each behavioral moment um, rein, kind of reinforced that that protective quality, mm -hmm. and so um, and, and the one other I'm just remembering the one other um, character that we we thought of was the the Anna Wintertour, uh, the fashion designer Meryl mm -hmm. Streep and Devil Wears Prada, uh -huh. you know, where she was just like very right. elegantly coiffed and she was fearsome, mm -hmm. you know. And funny, too, you know, and entertaining and compelling as a character. Mm -hmm. So those were some of the things that we thought, like, that's how we needed to tweak what a Scrooge would be if a Scrooge were a woman in Victorian England. Wow. That connection to Trump's inauguration is just crazy. Yeah. Like, that is, and like, like the way to tie in, you know, a right. present world to the past. Right. Yeah. So in the like in the page to stage event that um, that always happens with a new production, those are some of the things that I talked about that I wanted mm -hmm. to have that kind of resonance to what women might be going and women in public positions and positions of power might still be going through and the choices they still have to make. And let's imagine that that happened in nineteen. How much more difficult that might be in Victorian England. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it was really fun to wrestle with. Oh, yeah. And, to, and I, I wanted the adaptation to feel like, I didn't want it to feel like we added a lot of stuff other than changing pronouns, which, mm -hmm. of course, is a big thing nowadays, too. Mm -hmm. You know, what would, what would Scrooge's preferred pronoun be <laughs> in Victorian England in this particular situation? But, uh, I, but I didn't want people to, I wanted them to feel that they were seeing something um, new, and they were seeing something that was very traditional. It was still the mm -hmm. same story, but they were looking at it in a new way. And we came up with a phrase. We said it needed to be faithful and fresh. And in each time, the audience could enter it at a faithful telling of the story or a fresh telling of mm -hmm. the story. And, and they it, would both be satisfied. And they would both be satisfied. So people wouldn't come in and go like, well, you just changed it around. It's just like a different right. play. You know, it's mm -hmm. not the same thing. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Now, so you have directed and done some adaptations here. Mm -hmm. And you are an actor, but have you acted here before? I, I acted here one performance. Oh, one performance? <laughs> one performance. They did um, uh, Wait Until Dark, the thriller. Oh, mm -hmm. They did the, uh, So they did that. And I had played the character of Rote in two other productions um, fairly recently, in one in St. Paul and one up in uh, Bemidji and Summerstock. And the guy who was playing wrote, um, had like a wedding or something like that that he needed to go to. So they, oh. they were thinking like, okay, we need someone to just fill in on that day. And that was a time when uh, you, there weren't as many designated understudies, mm. though there may be someone who would step in for the, the Common Wheels mm -hmm. long run, you know, for right. some a, a known 
things like that. Right. So I said, I, I would do that, yeah. So I came down, <laughs> and Adrian, Adrian is making quite an appearance on this podcast, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> she was playing the lead character, um, Susie, in that too, so it was an opportunity to work with her and to act. And it, it was the first show on in the new theater here, so oh, wow. yeah, oh, yeah, so, so that was great. And we just had a rip-snorting time. I remember we, um, there's a, a, a famous, this is just like a crazy, um, it's called Wait Until Dark, so the famous last scene, uh, all the lights are turned off, and then there are just mm -hmm. matches that are struck and oh. stuff like that, and then all of this like uh, thriller kind of stuff happens in it. So it's it's really cool. Uh, we we did break a piece of furniture like a side table oh or something like, like I fell into it and it just smashed or something oh like goodness. that. We were just like yes. <laughs> <laughs> So okay. that was the only time acting here. Wow. I, I'd love to do that, except being away from my house that long with the length mm. of the runs. And mm -hmm. um, and because for a long time, um, I had a, a regular day job. I worked in the public history field. I was the manager of the James J. Hill House, which is a large historic house museum in mm -hmm. St. Paul. So I, you know, I, just, I couldn't get away from my day job mm -hmm. that much. Sure. So as someone who is an actor and a director, yeah. um, when I was working with you in Women in Jeopardy, I could tell that you have worked as an actor just in the way that you directed. <laughs> like you, you were able to give people notes and like example something for them or if you wanted the tone to be in a certain way. Like it was a really helpful way for people to understand what you wanted and what you needed from them. So how would you describe your directing style yourself? Would you say it is that actor-based directing? How would you describe it? I think you just described it. I think that's exactly it. Um, and I am really aware that I'm walking a fine line because I don't want people, I don't want to, on my end, only give them choices that I would make if I were playing mm. the role but I know a lot of times as a director, you're searching for the right word that will be that, that key, that lever that will mm -hmm. unlock something uh, to make that adjustment. And people receive words differently. Right. And, uh, and what they're able to show you then afterwards is sometimes like there's still a miss, you know, it's mm -hmm. still not exactly right. But I do know uh, um, that if I sort of demonstrate something, uh, and I oftentimes try to say, um, you don't need to do your version of it. You don't need it to do it exactly like that. It's that idea of showing can often get you further, faster, right. and be more accurate. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, But I do always want to make sure that I'm not uh, asking them to, to do it exactly the same way. And the other thing that happens is sometimes I like wonder, it's just like, I just gave them that note, and I feel like, I usually like to stand up and just like kind of do it and demonstrate it mm -hmm. because I can feel like, was that a crazy thing to say? And sometimes I get up and do it and it's like, oh, well, that doesn't work at all. You know, it needs to be something else yeah. because I know. Or I can tell, like if I'm thinking like a dramatic moment or something like that, like if a character is saying goodbye, this actually happened once too, where I was t telling the actor, it's just like, I feel you should say goodbye to her and then turn to leave. Or maybe you start to go and then turn back and say farewell. So I just like got up and did it. And the second time where I like walked away and then turned back and said goodbye, 
and I started crying. <laughs> and I thought, like, do that one, David. <laughs> Which is alarming for other actors when they see their director like, start oh, yeah. weeping or something. <laughs> but that can be a great way to open the door for an actor to show them, like, this is what you could do with this choice, and then build upon it. And build upon it, mm -hmm. absolutely. And the, and the thing about directors who demonstrate like that you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you should just play all the parts, you know, because it's so hard. But when you do that as a director, you have no responsibility for learning lines, for connecting with another character, for, like, making, giving a character arc. You just have that relaxation and that freedom to do just that moment. Right. To just play like a little kid would play and be creative at that moment. Mm -hmm. So that makes it really easy to do that. Um, and then the actor has to find a way that they can connect that to every single other moment that they have to create a whole performance. It's fun to, it, to, to work on just to like figure out like what will work best. Mm -hmm. And sometimes different things work with different actors, of course. Right. Sometimes um, just leaving an actor alone is the best thing that you can do because they mm -hmm. just need time and they need time at different points in the process. Sometimes giving people lots of notes and or technical notes is how they work better and they feel more comfortable receiving notes that way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the more emotional, organic kind of notes uh, that that might be the, the best key for them. So just being on the lookout, you know, as you start every single play, you're starting with like new people on a new show, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's just like how quickly can you learn just as you know that every actor is just like waiting for the director to just like, okay, direct us, and they don't know how they're going to be directed. Right. Mm -hmm. Will it be prescriptive? Will it be top-down? Will the blocking happen organically and they can move wherever they want? And to be able to signpost that as intuitively as possible so you can start moving, so people can start bringing their A-game as soon as possible. Yeah. That's just what you want. Mm -hmm. What are ways that you can how can you feel out an actor's process? What is the best way to like notice, oh, maybe this person benefits more from specific notes right away, and then they can, like, how, how do you learn which notes to give when? I, mm, I don't. I just have to, like, it's just sort of a read the room, mm -hmm. and you just have to sort of trust those people and listen to like what they're saying. Well, here's here's a good. You know, I was going to move, but I shouldn't move. Because we're doing a <laughs> podcast. But you know how it is when you're doing blocking, and a character will just like say something and just sort of lean forward as they're saying that. Mm -hmm. But they stay in the chair because they've been blocked to do that. I will mm -hmm. often stop and say like, "Do you want to move?" Because you can just move then if because they've just because their body is saying is communicating. I see a shift in what's mm, happening. Yeah. There's a new tactic my character is going to pursue. And as a director, you can't and you shouldn't like work down to that granular level and be that specific with them. You need, as I say, to create a sandbox. And if they know what the sandbox is, then play within that. So if I see someone just like leaning forward or something, it's just like, go, go, take mm -hmm. the step, stand up, move, or sit down, or do do whatever you want. Yeah, I love that. that. I love that. And I think that speaks to your actor-based directing, is that if something you gave them doesn't work with them, okay, that's fine. Like, yeah. let's find something that works for you and for your character. Absolutely. Uh, and if there's, if it's something that I can bring to the table, it would be having worked a lot in history and in 
literature and plays of a different style in a different period. It's like helping them figure out how those plays work as opposed to really contemporary mm -hmm. plays. And a lot of times, in a, even just in a period play from like mid-20th century or something like that, you'll often see that dialogue um, will tell you when to move and when to sit and when to shift and things like that, mm -hmm. even down to a level of less like, uh, a line might be written in three phrases or three sentences, and you can cross on the first sentence, turn on the second sentence, and sit on the third mm -hmm. sentence. And it will give it a crispness and a specificity mm -hmm. and lift the play mm -hmm. to that level of writing, just as, just as we know when we read like, I'll say even Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, or something like that, it's written at a slightly more elevated rhetorical kind of level, mm -hmm. and we want to meet the play where the play is and that will help physicalize it. And usually if you can point that out to actors in a couple spots, then people lock into it, and they're starting to do that. And then their movement has a crispness, and they have turns that are pointed, and they have gestures that are meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that just makes for a more interesting evening because everything is working together for an harmonious whole. That's what Henry James said. Oh dear, he's a terrible playwright. <laughs> so now I'm curious about just like mm -hmm. your overall journey, like mm -hmm. how you got started in theater, what came first, how you got so interested in literature and directing, things like that. I grew up on the east side of St. Paul. My dad worked for the 3M company. Uh, make scotch tape and all of those kinds of things, and they were rapidly becoming a global um, company, corporation. So they, uh, he was part of the international division, and so we moved to Japan. So we moved to Tokyo. Uh, this was at the end of fifth grade for me, mm -hmm. and then we were there for three years. And during that time, I remember, so we got there, so in the fall of sixth grade, then Mrs. Hawkins, I'm, you know, I was at this international school in Tokyo, you know, it's just like so out of my element, and I was a pretty, I was a fairly shy, somewhat insecure kid, and she said, we're going to be doing a play, and it will be Green Eggs and Ham, and we thought like, oh, a good, good script. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember her saying, she said, and Danny Rosenbaum will play Sam I Am, because he's done commercial work, which I thought, A, pre-casting, <laughs> and B, commercial work, she had, Mrs. Hawkins used that word, commercial work, I remember that, and she said, everyone else will just have to like walk behind in a costume, we wouldn't have to learn any lines mm -hmm. or anything, so you could be just like, would you, could you, you know, mm -hmm. in a house, would you, could you with a mouse or something, so people would have cute costumes, you could just walk, and we would do this for the kindergartners and first graders, um, but she said that we need one person who will ask Sam, all of the would you could use. We need someone to memorize all of those and to ask Danny Rosenbaum all of those questions. R room was quiet for a moment, and I raised my hand, and I have no idea why. But I just thought, oh, that's what I should do. And ever since then, I did the plays, whatever the plays were. Wow. I was just like involved in that. Later that year, our sixth grade class went on a field trip, and we went to go see uh, a play. And uh, it all took place in a big white box. And the characters just came leaping on and they did like circus things and they were real, and it was hilarious and so interesting. And what we were seeing was the Royal Shakespeare Company's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream directed by Peter Brook, one of the most famous uh -huh. 
productions in modern theater. Oh my gosh, you know, and one yeah. of the most transformative, just in terms of like how we could do Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just been a downhill ride ever since. <laughs> <laughs> You're just trying to get back to that. <laughs> since sixth grade. Um, yeah, so that was wonderful. I still remember so many moments from that show that are hilarious and stuff like that. So no surprise, I've done Midsummer like now seven times. Wow. And I realized, you know, he did a lot of circus things, and the last time I did it, um, just because of the people that I have, I realized, oh, we could do a lot of like silks, you know, so oh. acrobatic kind of work too. And then I was sort of looking at the production photos, so I thought like, I'm just kind of doing what I saw in sixth grade. <laughs> I'm like influenced by that, mm -hmm. as we are all influenced by one production to the next production, to the things we see, to the things that stick with us, and the things we don't like. You know, right. sometimes mm -hmm. we choose to do things um, because, you know, We've seen that show and it doesn't work that way, so we have to do it this way. It speaks to us in a different way. Anyway, so did all of that, went to the University of Minnesota. I thought like, well, I just want to do plays, but uh, I knew I needed to get another degree, a double major, so I'd have something to fall back on. So I got an English degree. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I had already started working for the Minnesota Historical Society, though, as a tour guide, you know, in mm. costume and stuff like that, and costume characters in a setting, in a historic setting, and I thought like, well, this is really similar to theater, and so I continued with that, and so I worked wow. for the Historical Society for 38 years. I know. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? But it was, so it was using a theater degree, an English degree, and, um, and working in local history. So everyone who tells you just like, oh, well, don't do that, you can't study that, you'll, you'll never make a living, I was just like, no. I have. Yeah. I made a really good living, and I was able to retire really early, mm -hmm. and then just do theater after that, because that's, that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's inspiring. Literally, yeah. I'm and like, you, I need to go find a museum. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, it's really good work because you're doing your similar kinds of things. You're telling stories to a public mm -hmm. about things that are important or meaningful right. in right. in your cultural identity or your heritage of whatever that specific story is and then you have to think of ways like how can we make that story more universal so mm -hmm. if I'm at a place like the James J Hill house which I managed for many many years which is about 19th century railroad baron mm -hmm. but it's a big house that was largely unfurnished so that makes it a really evocative place to talk about things in the past but you can also mm -hmm. populate it with characters and I think that's why I started there as a tour guide. They said, like, I think we think you should manage this place. Because <laughs> wow. then I started doing plays there and doing, like, reader's theater kind of things, like Victorian ghost stories mm -hmm. and Christmas mm -hmm. stories and, you know, uh, poetry slams, you know, of, of all 19th century poetry and <laughs> stuff so like cool. that. Yeah, it was, like, really, really fun. And so I realized that, oh, I, you know, you sort of think, like, I won't tell anyone at my day job that I'm a theater person, you know, that might not be, you know, I better be quiet about that. But I kept realizing that, like, no, they want me to do right. that. They want me to do more of it, mm -hmm. and they want me to use it. And so then, if, if a place like Commonweal says, can you come down and direct a show, the folks at my job learn to say, like, great, go do the show, go do the show, and come back, and maybe you'll bring something from that, too. Mm -hmm. So they were very supportive of it. So it was a wonderful environment, too. To flourish in. So was that around the same time that you started directing shows? Yeah, so I started out, um, you know, like 
I, I graduated from college in 82 then, mm-hmm. and I was just acting, 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 acting. Um, and then 89, I think, was the first show that I directed. Uh, and then after that, it was really sort of 50-50. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, it's much more directing mm-hmm. that, I'm, that I'm doing now. That's so cool. And the directing stuff is really similar to um, like managing a historic site. You know, or being the boss person, right. because, or being a project manager. You know, because you know you have a certain goal. They hire you to come in to achieve that goal. You have time. You have budget. You have people. You have resources. You have a certain space. Um, so, for me, I, I guess maybe I have some of the left brain, right brain kind of stuff uh, qualities enough, so that I can move through that and sort of think in those couple different ways, both creatively and just sort of structurally or transactionally Mm -hmm. in order to stay on budget and deliver a show on time, you know, which is part of what you're asked to do as a director, particularly as a freelance director, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like do it, you know, take care of this and deliver for us um, and don't crash and burn, (laughs) you know. But you have to be allowed, if not crash and burn, you have to be allowed to, in some places, um, being able to take enough risks so that you can occasionally fail, and if you do fail, um, make it an interesting failure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you're reaching for something, for a quality that you, mm-hmm. because no show, I think, in the end is 100%, you know, perfect, you know, or something. Yeah. It's, you know, most, we're not, every time out of the gate, we're not delivering the original cast of Hamilton or mm-hmm. something, you know, or whatever you're, you know, or Peter Brooks. Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, <laughs> or something like that. So there's always going to be places where that's like, oh, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. How do I turn that challenge into something that's going to be an opportunity? Like we were talking about with the transitions in mm-hmm. uh, Women mm-hmm. in Jeopardy, where the space and the resources here called for it to be something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, moving forward yeah. for what is next for you, mm-hmm. I saw that... Um, you have adapted Seagull. Is that getting produced somewhere? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I've done, um, actually Commonweal did an adaptation of Uncle Vanya. Uh, and that another was Another Chekhov play. Yeah, wow. that, was, that was mine. Um, and so the Seagull one, I've done a lot of Chekhov. I don't think of myself as a Chekhov expert or anything, <laughs> but I've done a lot of his plays. And um, the directing class, um, that I've been teaching at the University of Minnesota uses the Siegel in the textbook as in the example text. Mm. So I've like been sitting with Siegel and sitting with mm-hmm. Siegel for the last two years <laughs> for like four four semesters of teaching this mm-hmm. class. So it's just like I really want to do the Siegel now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, but it's interesting because the BFA program at the University of Minnesota, a group of students actually asked me if I would direct. This is during COVID, uh, a Zoom performance of the Siegel. Mm. And because of that, I thought like, okay, well, we need a specific adaptation just to meet their needs for it. So I had done this adaptation, I had taught the class, and then I thought like, now I really want to do the sequel. So I, I pitched it to one theater where I've worked a lot, Theater in the Round in Minneapolis, and um, and they decided to do that. So wow, yeah, so that's we're so um, yeah, so we're kind of in the in the pre-production kind of design phase, thinking about the play. What does the play mean? How do we say it in in an arena? setting, how does it work there, and the nice thing about it is I was able to go back to that adaptation and think like, how, what changes can I make that would be helpful for theater in the mm-hmm. round to make it feel like it fits right into their space, mm-hmm. and with that particular show, I 
I was just talking with the designers of saying, uh, um, like, the main thing that I want this to be is accessible and mm -hmm. to feel like they're seeing the seagull. So it's a little bit uh, uh, like the Christmas Carol yeah. example. You know what? I don't want pe people to think like, oh, it's so long. Oh, it's so boring. Um, I can't understand what's happening. So it's just like we're going to use just one name for each character. You know how the Russians use, as Dorothy Parker said, three or four names. And sometimes they use a nickname that has nothing to do with any of the other names. <laughs> so we wanted to make it accessible in that way. And so it's going to be a little bit shorter, a little bit funnier, but still have very much a texture of flavor of Chekhov. Because I think in with his plays, we are still laboring under that original sort of Konstantin Stanislavski mm -hmm. Moscow mm -hmm. art theater, heavy, dull, slow, right. deep, you know, mm, uh, weighted kind of production, which Chekhov never liked. So mm. he always wanted it to be a little bit different, uh, so a little bit lighter. Interesting. I like want you to, I have this um, <laughs> mentor slash colleague slash whatever she wants to call herself yeah. in New York. Her name is Karen O'Brien. Mm -hmm. And she was the one that did the translation of God of Vengeance, the one that I directed. Oh, yeah. And just like the way you talk about how you go about your adaptations reminds me so much of how she did the translation for God of Vengeance. Because, you know, it's a three act of course. drama yeah. and you know figuring out how to cut it down but also keep Sholem Asha's words and all of that stuff mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. I just like I love hearing about adaptations and how people bring it to now while still um, fulfilling the original playwright and the period of that mm -hmm. time right and if so if an, like, that's great if an audience can come away feeling like in that case or with the, like the sequel like I saw the seagull. It was definitely mm -hmm. the seagull. And they actually don't mention anything about the adaptation. And I right. think that's great. Mm -hmm. Just as I, I almost always think, as long as they don't notice me as a director, mm -hmm. that's what I want. I want the play to be there and for mm -hmm. them to notice the actors, but not really to think about the direction. Mm -hmm. So if they think they like the transitions in Women in Jeopardy, they should just feel like, oh, that's just part of the play or something like that. Right. They don't. Mm -hmm. They don't need to know that that has yeah. nothing to do with the original script. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that's exactly what it feels like. It feels right. like it was written in there. Right. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> when does the seagull open? Uh, it opens January twelfth. Ooh. Mm -hmm. So pre yeah. pre production. Right. Yeah. And before then, because you know me, I just go from one show to the next. Mm -hmm. uh, in two weeks, I go down to Texas to Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, where the head of the department uh, used to be uh, an actor up in the Twin Cities, mm -hmm. and he's been asking me to come down and do a show down there. So I'll go down and do that That's one, so and then come back, and then in. 2024. I'm so lucky. I can't believe this is happening. But I have what's like five shows in five months happening. Oh, that's wow. incredible. I, it, it, is it is incredible. I just didn't think that I would be that lucky. Mm -hmm. Just that blessed, really, that different people would ask me. I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> Look at, <laughs> close at the calendar. <laughs> well, that overlaps, but just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> well, I hope one of them is at the common wheel. I, in those five, uh, they're not at the gut because it's kind of before the mm. season kind of ramps okay. up. Um, oh my God, five before. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like the fifth one opens like May 5th. You wow. Know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. It's a wow. lot. It's a lot. It's anyway. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Boom, boom, boom. You know. But I mean, the nice thing, since I don't have my day job anymore, uh, I'll probably be teaching the directing class 
but I've done that now several times. So it's a lot of time during the day for me mm -hmm. to think about it. And, and as a theater history person, since we talked about that, you know, back in the old, old days, in the 19th century, or, you know, Shakespeare's time, mm -hmm. you know, they did like a couple dozen plays in rotating rep. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, they rehearsed like a week in, you know, the 19th century. There would be a turnover every week of a new play. Uh, there were probably things that were shortcomings that we would say like, well, look at those shows, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there were, there were things that must have been brilliant about them because yeah. we have brilliant plays from those time periods. So, so for me, um, it sort of helps get me out of my head and gets like actors and, other, and people just to make mm -hmm. instinctive decisions right. and deep, committed decisions, mm -hmm. just like we do in life, you know, in important moments, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, make a choice, go with it, we'll try to fit it together. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That's so cool. That's amazing. <laughs> it, yeah, it is kind of cool, too. But I do hope, you know, if not, if not next season, that, uh, that I'll be back at Commonwealth, yeah. too, because mm -hmm. it is a beautiful place to work. I mean, the, the space itself, you know, is lovely. It's just lovely. And there's such a strong commitment, like I said, to the actor, the audience, and, and the play itself, mm -hmm. too, and bringing that forward to an audience. It's just really joyous, because when people come to Lanesboro, they're, a, a lot of times they're not expecting that they, they will go to the theater, right. you know? They're here for other reasons, or for, like, whatever might come along. Mm -hmm. Well, look what comes along. Yeah. Women in Jeopardy, or Jekyll and Hyde, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever it yeah. might be. Yeah, and one of those shows might suck them in, and then right. get them to go to the other show that's in rep, mm -hmm. and then maybe get a season pass for next year. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Or to think like, you know what, let's go back like when the leaves are turning in the fall, and right. figure out like, you know, what are they showing then? Great, mm -hmm. let's go yeah. see that. Or they'll talk about it to other people. And um, I probably have like two, two kind of like mission goals. How odd, you know, to have that in your life. Uh, right now in theater, and one is to do theater in places where people would not expect it to be. Mm -hmm. And that could be a site-specific performance mm -hmm. of something. Like, the wouldn't ex you know, like I do some museum theater still, um, and people like go to the museum, and it's just like, oh, there's a little play here, you know, mm -hmm. to help create that. Or in small towns where I think, uh, this probably is somewhat of an exception for Lanesboro, but where you would think like, um, there may be a lot of people here who think differently mm -hmm. or come from a different segment of society than I do. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I want to go there and be there with them mm -hmm. and so that we can all say, okay, we may disagree on a lot of stuff, but you know what? Annie is a good show. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> so uh, come see Annie. Why not? You know? And yeah. then we'll all be in the same room hearing the same story. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a beautiful thing. And the other thing... Uh, that's kind of my mission right now, is to, um, I've had a really, really good, at 63 years old, I've had such a really good life in Twin Cities Theater, and a little bit in regional theater, too, that I want to do what I can to make it better for the next generation and the mm -hmm. generation beyond that, mm -hmm. to just like build on that and improve that, and some, some of it might be passing on sort of what I know, um, and some of it might be how can I help other artists succeed in that same area mm -hmm. and teach me new things mm -hmm. about it too. What is the next way that we should do Chekhov or A Christmas Carol yeah. or something like that? Yeah. That's... Or what are the new plays? Mm -hmm. Right. Synth and I have been talking a lot about this recently, about 
just as we grow older, we kind of feel our thinking shift. You know, our brains are developing more, like it's tangible to us, we can feel it. And part of that also comes with thinking about what will we be like when we are the older generation. Right. Mm -hmm. And we also want to be the people who are setting things up to be successful for those who come who are younger than us, you know? And so right. that's just like, that's so relevant and and great. Yeah, and you think about legacy and you think about like, okay, the next generation, who's gonna be the artistic director here or at any right. theater, mm -hmm. who are gonna be the company members, who, who are the people who are gonna come in and be the best sort of freelancers to come in to sort of help stir things up or to affirm things. Um, and then where will they go? What can they take away? And just keep that ecosystem, you know, kind of like a like a garden, so that it's well the soil is well tilled. You have new seeds that are being planted, and new new things are coming up, and uh, it's being tended in a in a good way. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It was it's a been, pleasure. It's been such a joy to hear you talk about your experience and to also just like soak it all mm -hmm. in. It's right. been great, yeah. You are welcome, what a pleasure <laughs> it is. It's so great to be able to talk in specifics and in sort of like big picture kind of things. We don't get a chance to do that too often because we have so many things that need to get taken care of. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Well, we love it here in Lanesboro. We loved working with you for Women in Jeopardy. Thank We've you. loved having you on the podcast and I'm just glad that our stars aligned in yeah. this way for us. It's wonderful, thank you so much. If you have topics you'd like to hear about or suggestions and feedback, shoot us an email at josie at commonwealtheater.org or synth.gonzalez at commonwealtheater.org. We release episodes bi-weekly and you can listen to them on Spotify, Red Circle, or at our website, commonwealtheater.org.